Though, what up fuckers, it's Andy from the One Up Pod. You just caught me walking into a big creepy mansion in the middle of nowhere after losing contact with the rest of my team. It's already pretty scary in here, I won't lie, but we all like a good scare from time to time, which is why I've always been a huge fan of the game-changing Resident Evil series. Given that June marks Capcom's 40th anniversary, I thought it would be a good time to compare two of their recent masterworks, the remakes of Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 4. The Resident Evil 2 remake was released in 2019, remaking the 1998 PlayStation 1 game. The Resident Evil 4 remake was released in 2023, remaking the 2005 GameCube release. Both remakes have been met with immense critical acclaim, being heralded as among the best remakes in video game history. But which game is better? That's what we're going to find out today through some extensive comparisons and analysis. So join me for... Fucking hell, that's a loud door. So join me for one Pod's video game deathmatch. Resident Evil 2 versus Resident Evil 4. Ah, fuck the door swinging shut. a nice looking smoking parlour. So for my own sanity in this episode, I will be referring to the two remakes as just Resident Evil 2 and just Resident Evil 4. I don't want to be saying remake any more than is necessary. You should be well aware of what games I'm talking about by now, and when I refer to the original games, I'll name check them as such. We will be looking at the following categories, art design, level design, story, gameplay, and finally looking at their effectiveness at remaking classic games. The last round is to kind of ensure that we don't spend five whole rounds discussing the original games on top of these remakes. This is going to take long enough as it is. Okay, that's really annoying. Huh, what's this hastily written scrap of paper say? It just says, the nicest time. Huh. Let me just try something. Uh, if I can just move the hands of this clock. Let's try... Quarter to seven. Nice. Oh, look at that. A previously unseen passageway. We'll meet up wherever this leads for the first round. Round one, art design. Oh, it leads to a library. I was expecting something a little bit more elaborate, I think. Unless this book here is a secret switch. Hmm. But perhaps this... Okay, so these are just books then. Now, if we're talking elaborate, this is one thing the classic Resident Evil games do incredibly well with their art design, crafting grand, imposing spaces and filling them with terrifying, unique-looking enemies. For this round, we'll assess the settings and the creature designs primarily. Resident Evil 2 is mainly located in Raccoon City Police Department, a grand, ornately designed location, 
It used to be Raccoon City's art museum until it shut down to be turned into a massive new police station to accommodate Raccoon City's sudden and major expansion. It would become a front for Umbrella with hidden access points to research facilities and some things just left in plain sight because in the long history of criminal conspiracies, there's always that point where they get lazy and sloppy. And in this case, it's Umbrella using the station's gorgeous old library to store their research papers. Just right there. Anyway, it's this clash of creativity and brutal authoritarianism that makes Raccoon City PD such a fascinating setting. Stunning statues and monuments fill the station, many of which are now covert locks to protect hidden areas. Rooms that once housed beautiful artwork now house firearms and crime reports. Raccoon City PD has an off-kilter feel to every corner. The constant friction between the space's original intent and its new function makes the whole place feel uneasy and unsafe. It's a brilliant, subtle way of making the police station feel creepy and weird, even when there aren't zombies filling the corridors. Making a mansion in the middle of nowhere seem creepy is easy. I should know. But making a space in the heart of a well-populated city still feel cold and distant is a masterstroke. The nest facility that takes up much of the game's final act, and also reappeared in Resident Evil 3's remake, is less ingeniously designed, but the chilling sterility of this hidden lab complex cannot be faulted. This looks like the polished, banal face of evil. Spacious white corridors, every corner looking and feeling alike, a site that was designed for uniformity. It's disorienting to navigate, and that's partly the point. In the moment, without the aid of a map, you would never be 100% sure you were turning the right corner, but the mood of Nest makes you immediately uneasy, because while there was some certainty that the dark corners of Raccoon City PD contained monsters, there's no doubt that this monolith of mad science contains horrors that your dwindling ammo supply just cannot handle. Speaking of the monsters, the designs in Resident Evil 2 are among the most iconic of the franchise. There are your zombies, with fairly standard stuff, but a great attention to detail in ensuring every zombie looks different. The liquors are legendary nightmare fuel, zombie dogs are again classics, the ivy are just deranged, I'm almost certain I've forgotten a few there. Then there are the major antagonists of the game. William Birkin, who becomes a monstrous out of control mutation, with some truly unsettling body horror. His mutation escalates into gruesome extremes, showing there is no limit to how bad the G-Virus can get, or how bad things can get for the player that has to fight the giant eyeballed fuck. Then there's Mr X, this trench coat wearing tyrant, beautifully simple design. He has the stature and severity to immediately inform the player that there's danger, but the use of the trench coat and hat loads him with mystery. Like if you see a man clutching a raincoat shut, you have a sneaking suspicion that he's probably a flasher. With Mr X, you're wondering what exactly is hiding under there. Much like a flasher, it's nothing good for you. Resident Evil 2's monsters look great, and more importantly, they all visually communicate their threat level to you. You can take one look at a zombie, and you know a few bullets will stop them. You see a liquor, and you're whipping out a shotgun for a bit of spray and pray, because the handgun isn't going to cut it. You see Mr. X, and you realise you need a grenade launcher, or a priest for your last rites. Okay, let me just try one more book here. It looks like it should be a secret door handle. Shit. Okay, on to Resident Evil 4. What grabs you over the course of this game is the range of locations on offer. There's the village, a grungy, forky hellhole. There's the castle, with its gothic opulence and undercurrent of morbid kink. And then there's the island facility, a militarised industrial tech dystopia. Within each area is a broad range of smaller locations. Broad open town squares, slaughterhouses, caves, dungeons, halls, clock towers, hidden labs and more. There's a great range of visuals on offer everywhere you go. Each area has its own feel, its own colour palette, texture even. The village will have areas choking on smoke from burning bodies, 
muddy colours and worn down looking wood buildings. The castle will have imposing stone walls, some beautiful interior design in the areas where guests of the castle will visit, and you'll move through torch-lit dingy dungeons full of implements of torture, or corridors full of imposing suits of armour. But all these places feel logically consistent with each other. The village, the castle, the island, everywhere you go makes sense as part of a shared world, and that's impressive for a game world with so many different locations. Resident Evil 4 may not have the big iconic nasties like the zombie, the liquor or the tyrant, but it's got an incredible selection of grotesqueries for Leon to roundhouse kick in the face. The Plaga is the standard mob, and it has a free stage life cycle, each one more gruesome and spindly than the last. The human victims of these parasites come in numerous forms, villagers, cultists and soldiers, each populating a different location of the game world. They all come with weapons unique to them and their own distinctive visuals that suit the environment. There's also a variant of these where the neck breaks and the head flops to the side, exposing tendrils of the parasite within, which is really fucked up, but more importantly, very cool. It's all just so wonderfully gross, far more unnerving than even the most messed up looking zombie. There's a certain unease in dealing out death to these people, as there are questions of how much humanity is left behind in these things. The necessity to kill them feels far graver. You're emotionally engaged in your fight for survival, doing what needs to be done to make it out alive, rather than somewhat guiltlessly mowing down the living dead. There are bigger, nastier weirdos littering the world too, like the chainsaw-wielding sackheads, a sledgehammer-wielding brute with a pig's head for a mask, blind berserkers with metal claw attachments who respond only to sound, the frankly disgusting looking regenerators, and their even more horrifying offshoots, the Iron Maiden. There are suits of armour bursting with tentacle parasites, flying bugmen, flying bugmen in hooded robes. Resident Evil 4 fully commits to the gonzo tone that previous entries merely flirted with. And then we have the boss characters. A hulking looking priest that appears at first glance like a Mr. X riff, but then he reveals himself to have the body of a giant fleshy scorpion. There are giant ogres, some fully armour plated, massive fish monsters that stalk the lake, and a range of really fucking disgusting looking mutations that incorporate tentacles, tails, insectoid exoskeletons, and disfigured human bodies. There's just a lot of thought going into these nasty bastards. It's not just the variety of the designs, it's the complexity of the designs as well. So they may not be more iconic monsters, but I feel like they're superior monsters. But honestly, I think these designs might step up more confidently into the Pantheon after this remake. The reason things like the Liquor or the Tyrant feel iconic is because they appeared in more games. Resident Evil 4's designs were purely found in Resident Evil 4, and now the remake has revived interest in them, and they certainly deserve to be more highly regarded. Let's try this book real quick. Okay, at this point I'm just knocking shit off shelves like a cat, aren't I? Okay, just one more. Ooh, it was a weird bronze family crest hidden inside one of these books. I wonder where that'll go. Probably in that crest-shaped hole over there, under the framed low-res JPEG of Prometheus Bound. Subtle. Ooh, a hidden compartment. Oh, I wonder what's inside. It's an octagonal crank. That's it? Okay, fine. I'll just try and find room for it in my bag. It's mostly just full of different coloured leaves at this point, I'll be honest. Anyway, where was I? Yeah, yeah. For the greater range of design ideas, and the greater complexity of those designs, this round goes to Resident Evil 4. While I do some rearranging, we'll go to round 2. Round 2. Level Design. Those fucking 
fucking doors. Where the shit am I now? A hallway. <sighs> Fuck. This place feels like a maze. Unlike my current situation, encountering complicated layouts can be fun in a video game. It presents opportunities for discovery and tension. Resident Evil 2 has one of the absolute best examples of survival horror level design. Raccoon City PD is a sprawling, multi-layered space. There are large main areas with numerous wings sprouting from it. Some rooms are only accessible by Leon, and some are only accessible by Claire, but... <coughs> oh fuck, it's Jenkins from my team. It's been torn apart by some sort of animal. But these, these wounds don't look like any sort of animal attack that I know about. And I've studied this subject extensively as part of a weird hobby. We should be careful going forward. Back on the topic at hand, Resident Evil 2 boasts a well-thought-out space that forces the player to backtrack and circle around, making use of the Metroidvania tropes that defined the OG PlayStation trilogy. The more contained setting means more thought goes into this labyrinth-like space. It ensures you will grow to know the area like the back of your hand. Use it thoroughly before it unveils a new portion of the map for you to explore, on top of the tracking back through the more well-explored areas of the department. Resident Evil 4 is a game of constant forward momentum. It was famed for its break from the formula of a traditional Resident Evil game, so it foregoes the use of the central location for smaller locations linked together through the story beats. Oh, fuck. There's a fucking zombie. We should be more careful going forward because we don't know what's going to be around the next corner. Oh, it's another zombie. So, where were we? Okay, so yeah. Resident Evil 4 uses smaller locations rather than one main location, and as a result, Resident Evil 4 often flows in a more linear fashion. It's not entirely linear, but it feels more funneled in the way the game is designed. The Metroidvania spaces are more condensed, and the propulsive nature of the story means they can't afford to let you get bogged down with the painstaking exploration. You need to just move on. And once you exit an area in the game, you can never return to unlock other secrets. So they try to keep these elements limited so you don't spend too long in any given area. As a result, exploration isn't nearly as rewarding as in Resident Evil 2. You don't feel like you're mastering these locations, you feel like you are powering through. But while it lacks the complexity of Resident Evil 2's grand design, it utilises the strength of breaking the action up across numerous smaller maps, namely in the pacing. Laying out a more intimate map very carefully can allow for more intense, compact experiences. The sense of discovery is condensed, but it means you can do more in a shorter space of time. The utterly terrifying regenerator introduction in the Ion's lab facility is a great example of this. It's a masterstroke of build-up and payoff, setting you on the back foot for just long enough before providing you the means to fight back. You have to run from one section to the other, escaping attacks, unlocking new doors, memorizing your turns to help you slip by the monsters in an almost panicky zigzag around the map until it leads you to the incubation lab where the killer component can be found. It's an example of how expertly paced Resident Evil 4's design is. Oh, there's a zombie out in the garden there. Get out of this corridor. Let's not waste any more time around here. While Resident Evil 4's broader selection of smaller maps is exhilarating and perfect for the game they are making, 
it cannot hold a candle to the intricacy of Resident Evil 2's map design. The winner for this round is Resident Evil 2. Round 3. Starry. Oh, thank fuck. We're in a safe room. I mean a safe room. This seems like a good place to slow things down and talk about the story. Oh, hold on a second. Okay, thanks for waiting. Resident Evil 2's story is largely pretty simple. It stars Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield, and it's an escape story set in the world's largest escape room. Leon Kennedy is a rookie cop having the worst first day on the job since Mario took a job at a construction site. He's a straight-laced, decent guy, so I have no idea how he wound up being a cop. Claire Redfield is the younger sister of the iconic Chris Redfield. She's a college student who's heading into Raccoon City to find her brother who went missing. Given Chris motherfucking boulder-punching Redfield helped raise her, it's easy to pass that she's been rigorously trained in survival and combat. Both characters are in over their heads, but they know enough of their shit to keep their cool through every deranged plot development. They're on paper fairly straightforward characters, the writing is largely there to explain why they might survive a zombie apocalypse. It's through their interactions with their respective supporting cast members that the more interesting human shades come into play. Sherry Birkin and Ada Wong are both strong foils for their respective leads. Ada brings hints of sexual tension, the power dynamic between the two is heavily in her favour, while Claire's connection with young Sherry Birkin has shades of Ripley and Newt from Aliens. But the antagonists somewhat drop the ball, at least in terms of the writing. The Mr. X tyrant variants who appear are imposing enemies, but light on actual character. William Birkin, the scientist who became horribly mutated after infecting himself with the G-Virus, is a characterless Hulk, much like Mr. X. All of the character-focused content around this character is found in the prequel games or supplemental material. Police Chief Brian Irons is just a stock child botherer. It doesn't take much work to make him unpleasant and scary, since you only see him stalking Sherry around an office. Annette Birking is the most detailed villain character, a conflicted scientist with an agenda caught between her family and the shadow organisations pulling the strings. Yet she's still rather unremarkable. She's fine, but not incredibly compelling as an antagonist for Leon or Claire, despite the Sherry connection. Everything you do in the game is geared towards getting the hell out of Raccoon City. There are those bigger power plays taking place around Leon and Claire, primarily involving the supporting cast, but the driving force of the story is to escape, and it's not until Leon and Claire find themselves in the Nest facility that the story's big reveals emerge. It backloads the plot. None of the critical story beats directly tie to Leon or Claire, rather they become entwined in someone else's drama. Like walking through the door at a house party and accidentally catching the hosts having an argument. It's not a problem to have protagonists inadvertently joining someone else's story. The Mad Max movies do it all the time, but usually the character remains involved from that intersection point. The main drive for Leon and Claire remains escaping, so the number of times they find themselves stuck in the middle of some shadow biowar bullshit stretches credulity a little. Just a little bit, maybe. It's a hard thing to get worked up over, honestly. The thing is, Resident Evil 2 isn't really about the story. It's not driving the game. The story is the pretext offered to drive the gameplay. Remember, this is based on a game from 1998. Cinematic storytelling was in a prototype stage, so there were limits on how involved you could really get. They tried to dress it all up in the remake with some excellent cinematic cutscenes and in-game set pieces, but the bones of the story remain the same. That means Resident Evil 2's plot is there to motivate the gamer to play rather than provoke or enthrall them emotionally. Resident Evil 4's premise is old-school video game nonsense at its best. 
The Resident Evil games have always been knowingly silly genre pastiches. From the very first game, there's been an arch daftness to the way the characters and stories have been written. Loading up a game in the year 2023 that centres on the president's daughter being kidnapped and you being the one dude bad enough to save her, you don't even blink. It's just an accepted facet of the series. Anyone who takes these games seriously is missing the point and missing out on a lot of fun. The tension between how unbelievably scary and how unutterably silly these games are is a big part of why I'm such a massive fan. While the premise is pretty rote and obvious, there's bigger story beats and dangers present feel far fresher and more original than your usual zombified offerings. Death cults, mind-controlling parasites, and increased focus on the spy thriller intrigue teased in Resident Evil 2, these are things that were always unique to Resident Evil 4 from the beginning, and something the series never really wrestled with in subsequent games. They kind of rolled back to the original concepts and story themes from 5 onwards. And that's a shame because Resident Evil 4 felt unique and exciting after 6 mainline Resident Evil titles and numerous spin-offs in 2005. 6 other mainline Resident Evil games and numerous spin-offs have been released since 2005 and Resident Evil 4 still feels fresh and fun. Leon is far more enjoyable as a character now. He left behind his cops badge and became a government agent, so now he's a highly trained operative, just a complete badass. And they do a great job of articulating how Leon has changed in the time between these games. Characters refer to events that we never saw happen just to get us up to speed. It can be argued this is lazy writing, because I know Red Letter Media used to use this as a criticism for the Star Wars prequels, but that's really only applicable when the writing is being used to tell you something that it refuses to show you. The information for Leon is building a backstory to explain why he is a badass now. It's not telling us he's a badass. The game needs to show us actual examples of how tough and capable he is throughout the story. That makes these little asides feel like helpful shading. And there's really something to be said about a competent protagonist. Someone who's just fucking good at what they do. John Wick, Batman, most Star Trek characters. When you write a competent character, you need to work harder for the story to throw obstacles at them. When you write an incompetent character, you can have them bumble their way into a trap or make a rookie error that sets them back. That can be entertaining for sure, but it's easy and it's often a crutch for lazy writers. The competence of characters like Leon Kennedy in Resident Evil 4 means the writers think about the situations they put him in and how they could prevent him from completing his objective. It leads to smarter, less contrived storytelling. All of the big beats in Resident Evil 4 are surprising and full of twists. There are setbacks, and Leon is often on the chase, making progress before something catches him unaware. The villains have the upper hand, at least initially, but their tactics become increasingly desperate the more Leon gains ground on them. Leon is always learning, adapting, and overcoming obstacles. It keeps the story moving and constantly pivoting into new dangers and scenarios. Hold up, I just need to put some of my stuff in this big box. I'll keep going while I do this. The supporting cast complement Leon perfectly. Ashley is a plucky co-star to Leon. She's vulnerable and she's often afraid, but she's capable and perseverant enough to push through her fears. Okay, I don't think I'll be needing this clockwork monkey. Ada Wong returns to reignite her quote-unquote professional relationship with Leon after their first encounter in Resident Evil 2. It's hard to say whether these characters have sexual tension, because Leon is a pretty no-nonsense, non-sexual character, and Ada isn't really written with a flirtatious side like you'd often see in these dynamics. Ada is a woman trapped between a rock and a hard place. She's conflicted due to her job and what she believes is right. Luis is a lively character who aids Leon and Ashley in their quest to escape. He stands out as a really unique character in the series, which is usually filled up with gruff grunts and corporate stiffs. Honestly, it feels like Luis flirts with Leon more than Ada does, so ship these two, Resident Evil fandom. I 
thought this clock radio was going to be a puzzle, but it's just a radio. I have no idea how the only radio station it can pick up here is dedicated solely to Bossa Nova, but... The antagonists in Resident Evil 4 are incredibly memorable, well-defined characters. Salazar is a wretched nobleman scurrying about doing the bidding of his master Sadler. Sadler being a pompous zealot, arrogantly assuming he has the upper hand at all times, usually because he does. They have distinct looks and their performances elevate these characters. And then there's Krauser. He's a former colleague of Leon's. He apparently trained him before becoming a mercenary and servant to Sadler after feeling betrayed by his own government. Krauser is a great foil for Leon, equally capable and overtly earnest about everything. He is truly the dark mirror of our protagonist. We'll get into his boss encounters as gameplay experiences later, but I will say here that both battles with Krauser are character driven. They reflect on the relationship between Krauser and Leon. The mechanics are there to emphasise the shared history between these men, as much as they are challenging your expertise as a gamer. Okay, I probably won't be needing this one-time rocket launcher just yet, but I think this will come in handy later. Besides, it looks like it's got a pretty sensitive trigger, so I'll just leave it. Ah, shit. Anyway, we couldn't wrap up this bit about characters without giving a final nod to the merchant. He was immediately iconic when he appeared in the original game, and remains an icon to this day. When I think of in-game merchants, I hear his voice. He feels very much like a character in his own right. He remarks on your exploits, vague though they may be, and conveniently appears at the most advantageous places. He has an air of mystery around him, someone with a possible agenda of his own, a vested interest in seeing Leon succeed. This is very appealing given how easy it is to turn video game merchants into anonymous NPCs. Every character in Resident Evil 4 is well outlined. When they're not the most well written, they have the presence to make up for it. Every character works and every character feels memorable, among the absolute best the series has to offer. So for its pitch perfect story momentum, originality and more engaging characters, the winner is Resident Evil 4. And as much as I'd like to stay inside the safe room until I die of old age, I should probably get moving and find the rest of my team. Round 4. Gameplay. I've made my way to what looks like the dining area. There's an ornate centerpiece in the table, with an octagonal hole in it. Gee, I wonder what that's for. Maybe this crank I've been carrying around for fucking ages? Of course, it's revealed a massive shaft with a ladder leading down into the bowels of the earth. We'll head down there once I'm done searching this area for supplies and handwritten notes of paper. In the meantime, let's talk gameplay. The best way to describe how Resident Evil 2 handles is solid. There are three different control types, and you select the one that you feel more comfortable with. And the issue here is that there's always an imbalance somewhere in the control schemes. Type A has the most cumbersome running option, clicking and holding the left thumbstick while you're pushing the thumbstick forward my least favourite running control ever, but it has the superior option for reload. Type B has a reasonable running option, one of the first buttons, even if it feels a little dated now. But the quick turn involves clicking the left thumb while you're moving it. Again, hate that. 
Type-C has the best option for running, the right shoulder button, but the reload is, you guessed it, clicking the left thumbstick. Now that feels cool at first, a nice little clicking motion, but it doesn't feel natural, so it's easy to forget in moments of extreme panic. And I prefer to run and reload with ease in games where I'm likely going to be running away from things and blowing through all my ammo a lot, so this isn't ideal. It takes some time for the muscle memory to take hold, so you're not scrambling to find the right button. The game's structure quite helpfully keeps things on a low burn for the early stages, so you do have a chance to acclimate yourself with the controls. It's not ideal, I prefer it to just click in right away, but at least the game design is accommodating you like that. Once you settle into a groove with your controls however, movement handles nicely, each character has weight to their movement. Oh nice, some hour. Luckily I've made room for this in the safe room. Combat in Resident Evil 2 is again, solid. The style of over-the-shoulder third-person aiming that the original Resident Evil 4 introduced to the series feels precise enough to make a difference in high-intensity monster encounters, and the use of melee weapons to help break any potential holds really helps you course-correct any mistakes you make along the way. You can push them free of course like you always could, but you can also jam a knife into their head to put them down for a moment. The knife has the dreaded weapon durability applied to it, meaning if you lean on that trick too often, the knife will break and you will need to find a replacement. Another common part of any good Resident Evil game is the puzzle solving. Resident Evil 2 has a rich assortment of puzzles. They are an essential part of this game. All progress is dependent on you activating the problem solving part of your brain, more so than gunning anything down. Many puzzles require you memorise info from a note, either patterns or codes, or other crucial information, and sometimes you need to run between those locations during puzzles, which adds some extra tension to the proceedings. Bringing all attention with them are the boss battles. There are several key boss battles spread between Leon and Claire's playthroughs. They share some bosses and have some of their own unique bosses as well. They're visually interesting, but the fundamentals of many of these battles are simply shoot them until they fall down, which is a design choice they inherited from the original games, sadly, and they really didn't need to. The final boss in particular is a total letdown in terms of design and relies entirely on cinematic presentation. Oh fuck, a zombie dog. Fuck, that was close. Oh fuck, a zombie cat! Fuck, 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 fuck. <sighs> okay, I've had enough of this place. Oh fuck, a, a zombie hamster? Wait, what am I doing? I've got a perfectly good foot. I'm probably going to lose a lot of points from the vegans with that bit. So I'm pretty banged up now, so just let me swallow this green leaf real quick. Let's start making our way down this ladder. Oh, it's dank. That's fun. Anyway, Resident Evil 4. Much like the original release, this game feels like a major step forward in terms of how the action is handled in this series. For once, it doesn't ask you to choose between control schemes. You can run by holding the shoulder button, or by pressing down on the left thumbstick, if you're a crazy person who likes that sort of thing. The game has melee combat, if you stun an enemy, you can take them down with a roundhouse kick or a beautiful German suplex. Leon does not fuck around, but he's got a flair for the dramatic at the same time. Your knife can still be used to break holds, and can now also be used to finish off downed enemies to prevent them from regenerating into stronger variants, similar to the likes of Dead Space or the Callisto Protocol. The knife doesn't get lodged in enemies' heads anymore, thankfully. In the Resident Evil 2 remake, Leon would frequently drop the knife after he stabbed it in someone's head. I guess day one of spy training involved holding a knife properly. However, the knife still breaks, so it needs mending when you go to the merchant stall. But you can collect smaller, less durable knives 
along the way to tide you over. Additionally, you can use the knife to parry melee attacks from enemies. If you can get your parry just right, it leaves you open to land a roundhouse kick. Sometimes your kicks can just kill them outright, because Leon Kennedy never skips leg day. Another new addition to Leon's knife play is the stealth kill. You can crouch and sneak around areas, catch weaker enemies off guard with a swift knife to the jugular. This helps shift the dynamic of your combat encounters. You can now strategize, whittle down your enemy numbers in an area so you stand a better chance of protecting yourself once they notice you're there. Thankfully the shooting elements of the game are incredible. The guns handle better, more smoothly. There's a fluidity to how quickly you can put down enemies with your handgun. The fact your enemies are almost human rather than undead, it definitely helps sell the impact of your shots. They react appropriately to every shot. Their body language can tell you how much time you have to nail another shot and possibly where. You can start to get creative with how you defend yourself in this game the more comfortable you get with the gun. For example, kneecap an oncoming plaga before putting a bullet in their head. His name has cropped up before already, but it honestly makes you feel like John fucking Wick. Even the way the animated Leon handling the guns feels like he's someone who knows what he's doing. You can adjust his stance depending on enemy proximity and improve his aim. These touches actually help shooting mechanics. It's a visual gimmick, but it actually informs you that the game is prepared for you. Some shooters do not work with close range encounters. You may as well just empty your clip into a wall because shooting mechanics are calibrated for a specific range. It's usually a way of encouraging you to use the melee combat system. The first or last of his games suffered in this regard somewhat, with clumsy, sometimes unnatural feeling close quarter gunplay. That's not the case with Resident Evil 4, the shooting mechanics are incredibly nuanced, and that simple change in Leon's animation lets you realise this so you know you wouldn't be wasting a bullet in this tense, cramped fight. I frequently favoured my handgun over bigger weaponry where I could help it, because it handles so beautifully. The game also features an upgrade system that doesn't exist in most of the other mainline Resident Evil games, apart from Resident Evil Village, which is, of course, a riff on Resident Evil 4. You access the upgrade system through the merchant. Every weapon can be upgraded in things like power, reload times, aim. The knife can have its durability improved. Storage cases can be increased. Body armor can be bought and mended to give you an extra layer of protection. New weapons can be purchased, such as the classic rocket launcher. I wish this mansion had a merchant now that I think about it. It adds an extra dimension to how you play the game. You will have your own priorities as far as which weapons you get upgraded or bought. The puzzles are a little less frequent, but they still require the same level of challenge, albeit in a more condensed form, given how much smaller each location is compared to Raccoon City PD. There's an entire section where you play as Ashley, trying to navigate a deeply cursed cellar full of suits of armour that inhabit grotesque tentacled creatures. These creatures react to a strange blue light that is set around as lanterns to keep them contained. They freeze up and cannot move when the light touches them. Ashley takes one of these lanterns and has to use it to walk around this oppressively dark area, raising it up to stop any oncoming enemies in their tracks. It's intense and exciting in equal measure. It makes great use of Ashley, giving her a mechanic of her own to defend herself. There are other big set pieces in the game, such as a minecart chase sequence that feels on the same scale as an Uncharted game. The boss battles are also more elaborate. Each boss comes with its own challenge, testing different skills of yours and offering unique combat arenas to handle them. All of the boss battles are elaborately designed with visually interesting bosses, but my favourites were always the Krauser fights. The first one is a simple knife fight. It challenges your parry ability, and his second encounter tests every skill you've acquired so far. It's a maze of traps and ambush spots before culminating in another one-on-one -on -one fight, this time with more claws and tendrils. The best boss fights challenge you as a player. They test the skills the game has asked you to learn along the way. And I love that the Krauser fights are character driven, whereas many others are not. Krauser trained Leon, that is why everything he does tests your instincts and your reflexes. 
he's testing his student to see how much he has learned. And Leon needs to prove he's better than his former mentor. It's superb stuff, among my favourite boss encounters in recent memory. Other boss battles challenge your dodging or your precision aiming, there's strategy, there's pattern recognition. It's all standard stuff for good boss battles, but it all works just right, and they never feel like they're repeating themselves. Oh dear, something made the passage above me shut. I'm sure that's fine. The winner for this round is Resident Evil 4 by the way. Everything Resident Evil 2 did great, Resident Evil 4 did better, and added a lot of fun new things that should have been staples of the series already. I'm nearly at the bottom thankfully, so let's just keep going. Round 5. Remaking Classics Welcome to the Hive. Please state your name and access code. Oh, I'm in an insanely elaborate secret lab, apparently. Someone left an old-looking bronze key on the reception desk. Tag reads exit. I should probably keep hold of that. Fucking leaves. Let me just chuck some of this stuff out. There. Okay. Welcome to the hive. Please state your name and access code. <laughs> so this round is all about how each game fares at remaking their respective classics. I've avoided direct comparisons to the original games as best as I can up until this point, so this section can focus entirely on what the games change, what they fix, what they improve. Welcome to the hive. <laughs> Your name and access code. Yeah. Some sort of chamber here. It contains like a weird living liquid. That must be the parasite that's causing all of this shit. Or it's a really strange lava lamp. Welcome to the hive. Please state your name and access code. Fuck off. Access code not recognized. Unauthorized presence detected. Deploying security measures. There's a massive lizard man in here with me now. Fuck! Okay, I should 
should be safe here while he stalks his route. So the Resident Evil 2 remake reinvents how Resident Evil 2 is played, bringing it more in line with the original Resident Evil 4 ironically enough. Sherry is given her own unique scenario rather than just repurposing an Ada Wong section, so she feels like her own character with her own motivations and dramatic interests, and not just an interchangeable sidekick. On top of that, it elevates a lot of stuff in the sequel. Resident Evil 2 was always a great game, but it lived in the shadow of its game-changing predecessor. There are certain aspects of the OG Resident Evil 2 that didn't take a true foothold in the franchise. Resident Evil 2 was, in many ways, the better game, but Resident Evil 1 had all the iconic moments. I think the Resident Evil 2 remake fixes that. It lifts up everything cool in the original game and lent it the gravitas and gruesome absurdity it needed to become truly iconic. Take for example Mr. X. I don't think the original Mr. X had anything close to the staying power of the Tyrant from the original Resident Evil, or even the Nemesis from Resident Evil 3. I'll be honest, I forgot he was even a character in Resident Evil 2. But through the remake, he's become one of the franchise's greatest achievements as far as recurring antagonists go. Ah, fuck, he's found me. Oh, fuck's sake. Time I use this shotgun I've been refusing to use the entire time because I have so little ammo for it. Right. I'm not stupid enough to think that's all it's going to take, but it's probably bought me some more time to get into Resident Evil 4. The Resident Evil 4 remake refines an already nigh-perfect game, making fixes that make the game even better. The original game was every bit the game-changer that the original Resident Evil was. It established the third-person action horror game, and was a major influence on The Last of Us, for instance. The Resident Evil 4 remake continues to expand on the gameplay style it innovated and is one of the best examples of a third-person shooter out there, especially within the survival horror genre. The remake also introduced new enemy types, the Brutes and the wonderfully macabre Broken Neck Villagers. It improved on the designs of all the creatures, especially the suits of armour, and the ogres now don't look like someone just stole a cave troll from Lord of the Rings. Ashley has been fixed as a character and as an AI assistant mechanic. Now she doesn't get in the way, and the instances of her getting grabbed and fucking up your day are greatly reduced. The remake has improved on every element of Resident Evil 4 that made the game so special. The combat, the intensity, the originality of its monster designs, and storytelling within the franchise. It even removed the quick time events. Resident Evil 4 is one of the best games of its generation. The new Resident Evil 4 is one of the best games of this generation. Oh Christ, he's turned into a big tentacle thing. hate the tentacle ones. Good thing I'd been hoarding scrap metal in my bag so I can craft myself a makeshift rocket launcher, somehow. Okay, open wide fuckface, presuming you have a mouth. Oh, it appears blowing up that monster has left a crack in that glass chamber that currently houses the mutant parasite. So, this category is a hard one to call. Both games are now the definitive takes on their respective stories, but the thing that sticks with me, and it's not a knock on the Resident Evil 4 remake at all, it's just a relevant detail for this category. Resident Evil 4 is refining a classic, Resident Evil 2 is reinventing it. For that reason, I think the winner here is Resident Evil 2.
the final verdict. don't like how much that glass is cracking, I'll be honest. So the winner was Resident Evil 4. Capcom has created two masterpieces here, games that stepped out of the shadow of their groundbreaking predecessors to become classics in their own right. All-time greats. Resident Evil 4 just pips Resident Evil 2 for me personally. Containment breach detected. Facility purge initiated. Facility purge? What does that mean? Self-destruct protocols activated. Oh, well. So it looks like the facility is going to blow up, and I realised shortly before I accidentally mixed that exit key with the scrap metal I used to build that rocket launcher. So I'm kind of fucked. I guess I'll just get to the outro then. Thank you for joining me again. If you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to your gaming friends or family. If you didn't enjoy it, recommend it to someone you hate. I'm not at all bothered. Remember to check out all our other great content, including Bash's new indie showcase series, and our current mainline episode dedicated to the games that saved us which is somewhat ironic given my current situation. Subscribe to one Up Pod on your favourite podcast platform and check out oneuppod.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at oneuppod, that's one U-P-P odd, and you can find me on Twitter at truly underscore defective. So that's all for now, we'll see you around no doubt, but in the meantime, don't forget to get a life.